Here at Providence, we hope that our Foreign Policy Profcast listeners had a wonderful and relaxing Christmas and holiday season, and that you have fully recovered from any unhealthy eating, and that you haven't already broken any New Year's resolutions. I haven't because I didn't create any resolutions. Now that we are at the beginning of a new presidential administration, we hope that our first episode of 2017 will offer a fresh perspective on issues in the Middle East. Shortly before Christmas, Providence co-publisher Robert Nicholson came into the office to talk about issues concerning minorities in Middle Eastern countries. Nicholson is the executive director of the Philos Project, a nonprofit based in New York that seeks to promote positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. Previously, he has written for Providence about Palestinian Christians, Israel, the need for safe havens in northern Iraq to protect minorities there, and other topics concerning the Middle East. In our inaugural issue of the print edition, he detailed his vision for how this region can organize itself to better accommodate various ethnic and religious communities. In this episode, Nicholson will speak about an article he wrote for the Philos Project that lays out five keys for how Donald Trump can reset U.S. relations in the Middle East. Because we do not want to cut out too much from this conversation, we will split this talk into a two-part series. Next week, we will release the second half. We have links to all of these articles on the podcast page, which can be found at ProvidenceMag.com, so be sure to check those out. Also, if you have any comments, feel free to tweet at us at Prov Magazine. Also, if you enjoyed the episode or if you enjoy the podcast, feel free to leave a review at iTunes. I hear that helps. Again, I would like to give special thanks to Joseph Rossell for producing this episode. Well, first, I want to thank Robert Nicholson for coming into D.C. today and not just to speak with us, but he's we've been lucky enough to have him come into the office and speak with us. And the topic you wanted to cover was how the Middle East has a minority problem. And so would you like to explain, you know, some elements of that problem and why you think we have a problem? Sure. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, And thank you to the Providence team, Uh, really just loving being a part of this journal. Uh, Right now we're facing really uh, a major transformation in the Middle East. Uh, And we see whether it's in Egypt, uh, in the Cairo bombing in early December, or what's happening in Iraq and in Syria, or what's happening in Lebanon, there is an incredible problem uh, for minorities living in the region. And I'm not just talking about Christians. It's Christians... Uh, certainly are one of the biggest minorities in the region. And 100 years ago, they made up a huge percentage uh, of the Middle East. Today, it's, it's Christian, but it's also Yazidis. Uh, it's uh, Turkmen, Shabak. There's a number of people, smaller peoples, who are suffering as the region sort of goes up in flames. And I think, you know, for the incoming uh, Donald Trump administration, one of the big questions is going to be not just what is our policy going to be toward the Middle East, but how are we going to work in an affirmative way for these minority groups in the region? And I think really to understand what's happening, you have to go back a uh, hundred years or so. Uh, in 1924, the Ottoman Caliphate uh, collapsed. This was in the aftermath of World War I. Uh, this was as the Allies set about trying to understand what is a, a post-war uh, Middle East going to look like. And the you know, the rise of, of Ataturk and the secularization of Turkey 
led to the collapse for the first time, I should add, in, in Islamic history of this thing called the caliphate. Uh, now the caliphate in sort of normative Islam is, uh, it is the political order of that religious community. And I think, uh, you know, if you, if you look at Islam and you compare it to Christianity, to Judaism, you'll find that it's uniquely given this, uh, this political vision uh, where nations are less important, uh, peoples are less important. What matters is this transnational political order of the caliphate. And the role of the caliphate is, of course, to keep order and justice, but also to uh, you know, institute uh, the teachings of the prophet uh, for the people who live under it. When the caliphate collapsed in 1924, there was, it was a big question mark hanging over the Middle East. You know, what is the, the post-war order going to be? How will things be organized? And of course, there was a series of states that were created uh, at that time, first under the mandates of various European powers. But uh, as they became independent, we found this region filled with things called Syria and Iraq and Lebanon and Israel and Jordan. Uh, and this was really an experiment in a new kind of political order and, and a new kind of political philosophy. Uh, one of the most important ideas at that time was Arab nationalism. And Arab nationalism was, was something new in the Middle East where Arabs were saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian or anything else. We all speak Arabic. We're all Arabs. We are going to model our societies on the Arabic language, on the Arabic uh, culture, uh, and, and sort of Arab customs. And it was a way for everybody to sort of come to the same level. Uh, and it flattened the distinctions between these different religious communities that have persisted for uh, over a thousand years. And it's not coincidental that Arab Christians, particularly in Lebanon and other parts of the Levant and Syria, were instrumental in creating this new philosophy. For them, finding a place in society necessarily involved first removing the religious distinction. Uh, up until that point, that had been, they had been second-class citizens. With the advent of Arab nationalism, they were able to be part of society as Arabs on par with other Arabs, Muslim Arabs or whatever it may be. Arab nationalism didn't work. It, it peaked uh, in the 1960s and uh, after a series of defeats with Israel and really a series of unfulfilled promises. Arab nationalism, Arab nationalist regime, regimes were not able to deliver what the people needed. They weren't able to deliver basic goods and services. Uh, societies were stagnating, and Arab nationalism as a whole failed. And so yet again, there was a question mark over the political future of the region, uh, and it was answered uh, ever since the 1960s and 70s with Islamism. You know, as Muslims, as Middle Easterners began to sort of revert back to the baseline political history of the region, they re-embraced various forms of Islam and political Islam. Now, the future, the fate of minorities under Islam and political Islam is very different from what it was under Arab nationalism. So ever since the 1970s, while it's never been easy for Christians uh, in the Middle East, since the 1960s and 70s, their future has been much more fraught than it was before. Trying to figure out, you know, in a society where uh, the political order is formed by a religion that makes very specific distinctions uh, between people based on their faith, and relegate some of those people to a second-class position, how can Christians uh, participate in this kind of order? And what you see happening right now 
is the ongoing working out of the answer to that question. And what you have are, are Muslims themselves fighting over the future of the region, not just Sunni and Shia, but between different schools of, of Sunni Islam. You have Saudi Arabia fighting with ISIS, you know, and saying that that caliphate or, or would-be caliphate is not legitimate. And so as, as the region's Muslims fight each other to try to figure out what is this next political order going to be, Christians are disproportionately affected by the warfare, by the bloodshed, and being historically disempowered, politically not included. They are looking around trying to figure out, okay, can we stay in this part of the world or do we have to flee? And what you see, you know, for example, in Iraq 10 years ago, there was about a million and a half Christians in Iraq. Today, there's about 200,000. And the, the reason why is exactly because of this really uh, Islamic civil war and trying to figure out what the future political order of the region is going to be. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the Ottoman Caliphate and how uh, it created this stability where you had different groups that were able to live alongside each other. And if they were to start to fight, I would assume the Ottoman Empire would come in and quickly stop that fighting and to create resolutions. And now we don't have anyone to really come in and enforce that stability. And uh, it also reminds me of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mm -hmm. where you had a massive mosaic of people. One of my favorite lectures that when I used to teach I would give, I would show my students an ethnic map of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and show them how there were German communities going into the Balkans and they were mm. Bosniaks and Croats and Serb intermingling. And then that of course causes problems with the fall of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. And of course all the problems that happened there. And it seems that there are some parallels between the two. But do you want to speak towards the the mosaic of this society? Because that's something I feel when I talk to people, they don't quite realize how diverse these communities are. They just assume, well, they're all Muslim, mm -hmm. or they're all Arab, yeah. or they're all, you know, over there. They're just the same group of people. No, it's a great question, and I think it's one of the least understood aspects of the Middle East. The fact that it is a, not just a mosaic, but a vibrant mosaic, and it has been that way for, for thousands of years. I think the perception is exactly what you say. It's a sea of Islam, or it's a, it's a sea of Arabs. I mean, the whole notion I think of the Arab world is largely uh, derivative of that whole movement of Arab nationalism. Up until that point, within the Ottoman Empire, people tended to identify much less with their national group and more with their religious identity. And I think you know the Islamic system that was in place under the Ottomans was called the millet system, and it, it, it made specific provision for communities to govern themselves. And I think that's the key point about the Ottoman Empire. And if you look back through Middle Eastern history, how has the Middle East been governed over time? And really the way things have worked has been largely uh, at the local level. Communities, whether they, they are Christians or whether they are Muslims or whether they are Jews, have historically been governing themselves. You did not have such a strong central state. You know, the Ottoman Empire, as big as it may look on a map, didn't govern all of the land under its sway. It actually, it collected taxes, it made general policy, and it intervened, as you say, and where it needed to. But day to day, these communities largely govern themselves. And I think it's an important thing to keep in mind as we think about what is the future political order going to look like. And I think that, you know, much of what's happened in the, in the Middle East since the 1920s has been uh, very different from what came before. And I think, you know, setting up these these nation states, really highly centralized and highly authoritarian 
uh, central governments has been exactly the opposite of the way the Middle East has been has been managed up until now. And that reminds me of some of the classic debates between a federal system of government versus a unitary system of government. And it sounds to me that the Middle East is mostly going to be unitary systems. Are you familiar with that terminology? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, and for our listeners, that basically means that as opposed to the U.S. where you have federal power, where the national central government has certain rights according to the Constitution, states have other rights, whereas the United Kingdom is a unitary system of government where all authority is in the central national government or whatever you want to call that central state government and then you have the regions will have powers that are given to it by the central and i think it it makes a big difference when it comes to the middle east again it's such a it's such a pluralistic society it's such a mosaic and it largely operates on the dynamic of groups you know in the united states we are a society of essentially individuals you know we all me and you standing before the Constitution, we are equal. And our government recognizes that. You and I recognize that. Everything in our system of law and politics obeys that principle. When you come to the Middle East, and everything is about groups, groups matter. It's hard to have a unitary state and have legitimacy in the eyes of the different groups that make up the society. So if you come into power, my first thought is going to be, you are going to build your power at my group's expense. And my group is excluded from political life. We sort of retreat into ourselves. And what you have to do if you're a ruler in this society, managing all of these diverse groups, many of which uh, are antagonistic toward each other, is you have to have an abundance of power. You have to use force. The only way to keep these, these nation states intact and they're largely artificial, these states, is to exercise a tremendous amount of force and to keep people in line. Otherwise, the society fragments along these group lines. So fast forwarding from the Ottoman Empire in the 1970s to the Arab Spring, what do you think the Arab Spring has taught us about this region of the world? I think the main lesson the Arab Spring has taught us has been that the system that we've designed that's been in place since World War I doesn't work anymore. I don't know that it's ever really worked, but the system certainly is not working. And I think what you saw happen, and it took, I think, everyone by surprise, is you had the people of the Middle East, Middle Easterners, and it wasn't just Muslims or just Christians. You had this tremendous outpouring, people who wanted liberty, people who didn't want liberty, pouring out into the streets and saying, we are dissatisfied you, central government, are not meeting our needs. And by the way, we think you're illegitimate. You do not have the right to govern us. And what you saw happen across the region was the collapse of these totalitarian states, these republics. You saw it happen in Tunisia. You saw it happen in Egypt. You saw it happen in Syria. I think you saw other effects in other countries as well. But the lesson that uh, those societies uh, do not work was incredibly scary for a lot of people because if that doesn't work, then what does work? Interestingly, some of the societies that were least affected by the Arab Spring were the monarchies. So you have this really unique situation where the monarchies, you know, in our mind, you know, the less democratic governments, sort of benevolent dictatorships, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, being largely unscathed in these republics actually facing an incredible amount of opposition in the streets. So 
really, I think much of what we're talking about here is this question of legitimacy. Who has legitimacy to rule in the Middle East, in the, in the so-called Arab world? And I think in places like Jordan, uh, where there is a king who has cultural and religious legitimacy, the challenge from the street was far less severe. In places where you had supposedly democratically elected leaders, there was a real awareness on the street that these people don't represent us. And I think what you saw in the Arab Spring was lots of unhappy people letting the world know that we're unhappy. Now, the problem with the Arab Spring, of course, was that there was no uh, plan for what would come next. And again, and we keep coming back to this, but this question about what is the future political order of the region. Uh, and what you saw was this brief flash of democracy, say, in Egypt, where they, the people voted and the people elected an Islamist. Uh, the same thing that happened in the, uh, the early 2000s when the, the Palestinians voted, similar situation. Uh, let's let them exercise their right of democracy, and they voted in Hamas. They voted in an Islamist movement. And so I think, you know, for, if you're standing in the West, you have to ask yourself, if we believe that democracy is the best thing, and uh, we ask the people in the Middle East to vote, and then they vote in parties that we think are illiberal, then what? What if the people in the Middle East want the future political order to revert back to some form of Islamic government, to the caliphate? How do we respond to that in the West? What does that mean for the future of minorities? Those are big, big questions, and I don't think anybody has the answer to that right now. So you mentioned how uh a version of democracy came to the Middle East and the people elected Islamists in Egypt and other places. Do you think that there are lessons from the United States, for instance, where we have a democracy of sorts, but we also have people who will call it more of a republic, not necessarily a democracy, where we have checks and balances. We have a Supreme Court that can come in and say, even though the majority wants to do something, they're not able to do it. Do you think there's lessons there? Because it seems to me when the Muslim Brotherhood came into power, they then began to do several things that the population did not want to do. They violated certain freedoms and so forth. So uh, do you think there would have been a benefit if there had been a Supreme Court or some other checks and balances, whether from civil society and others, that could have prevented a more illiberal form of democracy? I think it's a great question. And what you find in the Middle East is a, just a, a wholesale lack of checks and balances, whether you're talking about you know, a monarchy or a dictatorship or some sort of uh, seemingly democratic government, is that there's really no, uh, there's nothing trying to check the ruler's power. And what happens is these people come to power and they have military force behind them and it becomes incredibly hard to dislodge them. You know, you talk about checks and balances. Well, it, it's hard to even criticize them on Facebook in many times. Even, you know, the Palestinian Authority, you know, if you go on the web, on your personal Facebook page and criticize the president of the Palestinian Authority, you very likely could end up in jail. And that's not all that unique in the Middle East. And so trying to, you know, the search for checks and balances, I think, is a very worthwhile endeavor. And I think a great place to start is exactly what you mentioned, and that's civil society. You know, when Tocqueville came to the United States back, uh, you know, in the beginning of this republic, he was very struck by what he called these mediating institutions, uh, religion, community, all of the things that sort of buffer between the individual 
in the state. And what you find is this incredibly weak and sometimes non-existent civil society in the Middle East. People who are speaking out, uh, who are advocating, who are putting some kind of pressure on the government. Uh, and what you find is the only groups that have really stepped in to fill that void have been the Islamist groups. For example, in Egypt, you had the Muslim Brotherhood. For years, sort of the recognized opposition to government power uh, and they were successful. I think what they did as a mediating, mediating institution, as a, sort of a, a player in civil society, the influence that they exerted, uh, I think it helped uh, you know, facilitate the Arab Spring in Egypt. And then of course, it led them to power in the aftermath. So I think you know, one of the ways that the US can be instrumental in the Middle East is by, you know, to the extent that we're giving aid, that we're, that we're doing development I think one of the things we need to be focused on is civil society. We need to be building up that those mediating layers between the individual and the state that just don't exist today. And as you were talking, talking about checks and balances and the mediating institutions, it made me wonder, do you think that these types of institutions uh, would help protect minorities? In other words, do these problems with minorities being disenfranchised or being oppressed, whether they're Christian or not, be derived from a lack of these checks and balances. In other words, we have this winner-take-all system so that if your group loses, you don't just lose a presidential election. You lose local power. You lose all sorts of other power. So therefore, it leads you to uh, you know, fight more often or to kill off other groups and so forth. Does that make any sense? I think, yeah, absolutely. I think to the extent that we can have actors in civil society advocating for pluralism, for liberty, for rights, for non-majority communities, absolutely, of course. I think that Christians will only benefit from that and, and other minorities as well. I think it's important, though, to really push on the concept, though, of, of Islam as being perhaps the most important mediating institution, the mosque, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in some states. Uh, the idea that Islam... Uh, is not going away anytime soon. It's, there's a great book uh, called uh, Islamic Exceptionalism uh, by a gentleman named Shadi Hamid, who's at Brookings. One of the best books on what's happening in the Middle East right now, as far as I'm concerned. And one of the things that, that Shadi talks about is, first of all, as the title suggests, he's saying Islam is exceptional in that, uh, as I said before, it's both a religion and a political vision. Uh, and that is not going away anytime soon. In fact, to the extent that you know the region has deviated from Islam, it's destined to come back eventually. It's sort of the baseline uh, normative political you know uh, order of the Middle East. And I think you know, and sh if Shadi was here, he'd probably say that look, a caliphate or something like it is is almost destined to come back. It's what people have been searching for ever since 1924. And the question then becomes, and this gets to what you just raised, how can we in the West come alongside? Muslims, even Islamists, even people who are calling for a caliphate, which for us sounds absolutely awful and illiberal. But how can we, you know, help Islam become itself uh, an advocate for these minorities? I mean, the resources are there in Islam. I mean, there's been recent uh, proclamations. There was the Marrakesh Declaration. There's lots of attempts to try to find religious liberty in Islam. Lots of looks back to you know, the, the storied history of coexistence in places like Andalusia. And some of that is very much overstated, but there's some truth to it. The tools are there in Islam. And the question is going to be, 
you know, as actors sprout up, is Islamic actors in civil society, will they be calling for uh, protections for Christians? Uh, if the region stays the way it is, then uh, the failure to do so will mean that Christians can't stay. Uh, there needs to be an authentic, uh, legitimate uh, Muslim voice that's calling for equality and liberty for Christian and other minority citizens. And recently you uh, gave out five keys for resetting relations that you would offer to President-elect Trump. So would you like to go over some of those keys? Sure. I think the Middle East, as much as you know, many people who voted for, for Donald Trump with the expectation that there would be a a large scale, you know, walking out of the Middle East. I don't think that that's that's an option today. For lots of reasons, uh, we have to be engaged, and, and that doesn't always mean, or even necessarily mean, reinvading or, or or doing anything in such a scale as we did in 2003. However, uh, steady, constructive engagement with the region is an absolute necessity for Donald Trump's administration. He has to do something about Syria. He has to do something about. The Middle East. He has to uh, address the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There are things that he's going to have to do, uh, and if he doesn't do them affirmatively, the circumstances on the ground will force him to do something. It's just not going to go away. And so, in thinking about, well, you know, if I'm advising Donald Trump, you know, if Donald Trump uh, gives me a call and says, "Hey, what what things should I be thinking about as I approach the Middle East over these next four years?" I came up with five. Uh, themes that I think are important. The first one is this: uh, the importance of alliances. One of the universal comments the Obama administration's treatment of the Middle East is that we have virtually destroyed all of our alliances. Destroyed may be a strong word, but I think there's consensus among, among Jews, among Muslims, among Christians that the Obama administration, the United States of America, we burned our friends. We reached out to Iran which is an enemy of all of our allies in the region. And we fell over ourselves trying to make this deal on Iran's nuclear program. Like that deal or hate that deal, what it signaled to people in the region was that uh, the United States is turning toward the Shiites, which may mean nothing for us, but in the eyes of the people on the ground, it means a lot. The U.S. Uh, turned its back uh, on Israel, on Saudi Arabia, on Jordan, on Egypt, and really let Iran run roughshod over the region together with Hezbollah, with Russia, and with Bashar al-Assad. And so the first thing Donald Trump needs to do is repair our alliances. It needs to show that we see there are friends and there are enemies, and it needs to let both sides know exactly where they stand. This is you know, the amorphous nature of U.S. foreign policy during the Obama years just has to come to a stop. We have to say, yes, friends, you are our friends, and yes, we understand that these are our enemies. And I think you know one of the first things Donald Trump should do is make a personal trip to the region and begin rebuilding personally, literally, friendships with the leaders of those countries. The second idea, the second theme that I think is really important, we've touched on it a bit, is the idea of federalism. So historically, the Middle East has been run best when it's run most locally. It's been run worst when it's run from the capital in whatever country it is. It's important that as we make our foreign policy for the Middle East, we recognize the underlying diversity, that underlying mosaic that we talked about, and seek to devolve power from these highly centralized governments to the communities 
and the regions so that these people can run their lives day to day. I think that, you know, whether you're talking about Iraq, you're talking about Syria, Lebanon to some extent, these regions need to be decentralized. These states, you know, I was speaking recently to the former ambassador of Iraq here in the United States, and he says, look, we, we know that we must decentralize. There is no choice for us as Iraq. Iraq will not survive if it stays as centralized as it is. So I think promoting policies that encourage federalism, uh, you know, thinking about the post-war situation in Syria, what it will Syria look like? Syria should be largely federalized to recognize Kurdish region, Sunni region, the Alawite region, and so forth. The third theme is, is the idea of liberty. We've talked a lot about democracy, 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 democracy. And I think one of the things that we're forgetting is that democracy doesn't always lead to liberty. Uh, and liberty, by the way, doesn't necessarily require democracy. So I think it's important that we start to shift our vocabulary and the way that we're thinking about making policy from policies premised on democracy being the only path forward to working to expand liberty as much as possible where we are today. We may not like where some of these governments are. In fact, I think we should be challenging many of these governments, Saudi Arabia uh, to begin with. But there are ways, I think, to prompt reform within the societies as they stand short of regime change and working to expand that zone of liberty as much as possible with civil society, with some of the things that we talked about. The fourth thing, I think this is really key, is public diplomacy. Donald Trump won the election in this country because he spoke to the common man. Donald Trump made you feel like he understood what you were going through and he was on your side and he was going to stand up for you, the little guy. What we have not been doing in the Middle East is speaking directly to the people. We speak to leaders, sometimes we don't even speak to them. One of the things that I think Donald Trump can do very well is to begin speaking in a very intentional way to the people of the Middle East and saying, we recognize your history, we recognize your frustrations, we are on your side, we understand that you are often in illiberal situations with your government, and we're here for you, essentially. And I think it's especially important that Donald Trump is a businessman. You know, you have swelling unemployment in the Middle East. You have a huge uh, and very young population that's looking for real estate, looking for jobs, all these things. Donald Trump can speak to the things that matter most to these people. And I think it's something that, you know, if you look at the Iranian regime, you know, the, the Ayatollahs tweet to the American people. We're not tweeting to the Iranian people. And I think it's a huge gap and something that Obama really dropped the ball on at a couple of key points. The last thing is narrative, domestic narrative. If we're going to do what I say and have a steady uh, engagement with the region, Donald Trump needs to make the case to the American people why that's important. And he needs to make that case from the perspective of self-interest, meaning, you know, what are we going to get for being involved in the region? You know, he's, he's famously said he's going to, uh, you know, we'll take their oil. Whatever narrative he wants to spin, it has to make sense why we would continue to be engaged in that very troubled part of the world. But I think it also can bring together uh, the sort of the, the, the grand sweep of history. There are many ways that we can talk about the Middle East, explaining why it matters to the American people that, that we're just not doing now. And I think a lot of people, it's not necessarily that they hate the Middle East or they want nothing to do with it, but there's a question, why are we? Why are we there? What are we doing there? How does it benefit us at all? And I think to the extent Donald Trump is able to answer those questions, our Middle Eastern policy will be that much stronger.